welcome to the Jurassic Park cast. The Jurassic Park podcast for guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel Jurassic Park. And also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 63, The Beach, recorded on September 8th. We're finally getting a cool streak after a very hot Labor Day weekend. Thank you for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. Check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Chinese Cafe, and our outro is Sally Ride. Corrections! Uh, all my life, as a courtesy to Jurassic Park 3, I've been mispronouncing and misreading Spinosaurus aegyptiacus. It wasn't until terrific guest from episode 56, Jingmei O'Connor, was talking about the new mount at the Field Museum when she pronounced it aegyptiacus, and also correctly, that I noticed how it's actually said. I was like, what? But, but surely she knows what she's talking about, and, and she does. And I'll be damned, Jurassic Park 3 got it wrong. Shock of all shocks. It's not aegypticus. And it never has been. It's Egyptiacus. Spinosaurus Egyptiacus. Now we know. During an interview, I was asked if I'd had experience working in an office environment and in an out-of-office environment, to which I replied, I had all kinds of experience working in all kinds of environments, except, like, in outer space. And up to that point, the interview had been going pretty good. Maybe I should not have mentioned outer space. And uh, it turns out, no. Not all butlers are, in fact, British, just the infamous ones who've committed murders in Western literature are. And as a, a penance, the British's cultured accent will forever be regarded in North America as a voice of servitude. You can thank... Well, it looks like all the stories where the butler did it are, are actually written by Americans, so you, I guess you can thank America for that. There you go. Dinosaur news! Our first news story is of a new Japanese dinosaur named after the Tyrannosaurus. The journal Nature published on September 7th, yesterday, 2023, the article New Theropod Dinosaur from the Lower Cretaceous of Japan provides critical implications for the early evolution of Ornithomimosaurs, which names the new Tyrannomimus fukuyensis. This critter was about seven and a half feet long and is believed to be a basal member of the Ornithomimosaurs from the early Cretaceous, an old, old ancestor for animals like Ornithomimus, Struthiomimus, and Gallimimus, which you'll recognize from Jurassic Park. The ostrich mimics. They're uh, flocking this way. Remember them? This new discovery of Tyrannomimus from the early Cretaceous quarry in central Japan exhibits special features which can, quote, complement our knowledge to understand the early evolutionary history of Ornithomimosauria. The name Tyrannomimus fukuyensis means Tyrannosauroid mimic from Fukui and is known from plenty of remains and was given the holotype FPDM, V-11311, housed at the Fukui Prefectural Dinosaur Museum. It was uncovered from the Kitadani Formation and is comprised of a disarticulated but associated skeleton, including two parts of the brain case, several dorsal, sacral, and caudal vertebrae, and fragments of ilium. After being run through the phylogenetic analysis machine, Tyrannomimus is recovered as a sister taxon to Harpymimus within the Dinochiridae, making this the, quote, oldest member of Dinochiridae and the first representative of the clade from Eastern Asia. Now you may be saying, refresh my memory, what are Dinochirids again? Dinochirids are Asian and North American ornithomimosaurs spanning from the Albion to the Maastrichtian ages, which were large carnivores with long slender scapulae and long forelimbs, and three long huge claws on each hand. They're like the opposite of a tyrannosaur, actually. If tyrannosaurus had huge heads, big teeth, and strong le uh, back legs with dinky little arms, dinochirids had small heads, no teeth, and huge arms, and likely weren't very good at running. So you may be asking, if the if they're like the opposite of a tyrannosaur, why is it called a tyrannosauroid mimic? 
Well, I looked into that. That's a good question. Apparently, the name is derived from the, quote, its morphological resemblance with tyrannosauroids in which the vertical ridge on the ilium has been regarded as synapomorphy. So there's a ridge on the ilium that's a shared feature between the basal ornithomimosaur and tyrannosauroids. So it's named after a ridge on its ilium. That's paleontology for you, I guess. I suppose this common ridge on the ilium is a shared trait, and perhaps early tyrannosauroids and early ornithomimosaurs share this ilial ridge. But after splitting at some point, they obviously evolve in completely different directions from there. Identifying this as an early Aptian ornithomimosaur suggests that split would have occurred previous to the Aptian age of the early Cretaceous. So I guess in terms of the timeline of your uh, mystery writer, finding out if the butler did it or not, um, <laughs> logically, you would find out, ah, this is where these two growths split. Our second news story is related to the nesting behavior observed of the velociraptors in this chapter of the novel. It's called Dinosaur Brooding Behavior and the Origin of Flight Feathers, published in Feathered Dragons, studies on the transition from dinosaurs to birds back in 2004. The axiomatic question, what came first, the chicken or the egg, is kind of easily answered. That, of course, that there was an egg first and some mutant pre-chicken hatched out. And, and, and actually well, it became a chicken, so the, to the disgusted horror of its parents. And, and a parallel axiomatic question would be what came first, the feather or the bird? And of course, it's the feather. We know that there were feathered creatures which eventually evolved into birds, and the same is true of flight. Feathers came before flight. But the question is, what led dinosaurs to grow longer feathers, which eventually surprised the bejesus out of one of those animals when one day he or she was the first of those damn things to actually fly? He got home after work and he was like, I flew today. I laugh about that with my wife. The authors, quote, propose a mechanism to account for the forelimb and tail feather lengthening process based on a behavior that exists in living birds, namely brooding. Interestingly, despite the many known examples of modern birds that use their wing feathers in nesting and chick rearing, there has been no previous proposal of brooding as a selective pressure in the evolution of flight feathers. We present fossil evidence that nesting and care of hatchlings could have been responsible for the development of long feathers on the forelimbs and tails of pre-avian theropod dinosaurs. It has been noted that oviraptorids incubated their nests in a posture strikingly similar to that of many modern birds, with breast and feet in contact with the eggs." Unquote. And you can recall the description of the Oviraptorid-style nesting from uh, episode 56, The Lodge. The article, quote, Reconstruction of Oviraptorid Clutches illuminates their unique nesting biology. An Oviraptorid could sit in the middle of the nest with its wings wrapped around the stadium-like rings of eggs. So that's neat. The authors say, quote, Gaps in the animal's coverage of its eggs were sufficiently large to allow solar heating, wind cooling, or rain wetting effects on the exposed eggs. Comparisons to modern birds demonstrate that these gaps could have been covered by wing and tail feathers. Thus, the evolution of long feathers on the forelimbs and tail base of the theropod bird ancestors could have been driven not by flight requirements, but by the advantage of decreased environmental stress on the eggs and hatchlings. The authors Thomas Hopp and Mark Orson further suggest, quote, we determined the extent to which theropod dinosaurs could adopt bird-like postures while incubating eggs and tending hatchlings and concluded that the use of long forelimb and tail feathers for brooding could readily have existed even among early theropods. Furthermore, because the skeletons of these older theropods were conducive to brooding but not flying, forelimb and tail quill feathers may have evolved in these animals to the sizes and shapes seen in Archaeopteryx in the absence of flight, whereupon they were subsequently co-opted by Archaeopteryx 
or a similar creature for the additional purposes of flying. So, what an interesting theory, one which these naked velociraptors in Jurassic Park couldn't possibly be doing because they have no feathers whatsoever. Alright, with the corrections and the dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my very special guests this episode. Well, my guests today are Dave Rossi and Ethan Ullman, two accomplished Weird Al fans who host the Dave and Ethan's 2000-inch Weird Al podcast, providing an entertaining podcast based around Weird Al Yankovic and his fandom through fun interviews and engaging discussions. Uh, thanks for joining me today, guys. Thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. It's been a while. We've been trying to get in touch with you for a Trying to get this interview going for a while. <laughs> it is going to be well worth the wait, I'm sure. So people will be interested. We met in Seoul, South Korea at the head offices of Samsung back in 2021 when they unveiled their new state-of-the-art 1,000-inch micro-LED display with improved colors and a thinner design, nicknamed the Great Wall of Gangnam Style. We were in awe of its excellence when an uncredentialed member of the Western media named Frank blurted out, this needs to be at least twice as big. And then they kicked all the Western media out. That was when... Dave, Ethan, and I met riding in an overstuffed minivan, deporting us to the DMZ into the north. And uh, we can agree that uniting today has been more comfortable than riding the shuttle bus through the demilitarized zone. So thank you for joining me today. Yeah, you know, after that, we said if we got out alive, we would record the podcast with you. And here we are. So we, we kept up our end of the bargain. And um, I understand um, the family that you murdered, they're still... <laughs> Mourning the loss, but at least we escaped and we can record this podcast. So, um, did you guys have any mementos or keepsakes from from uh, that you've hung on to from that trip? Well, the one thing that that it really bothered me about it was that it was a one thousand inch and not a two thousand inch uh, item that we were looking at here. So, I mean, we're obviously the two thousand inch podcast. So, next time, I don't think I would go on this trip. I mean, I enjoyed the company very much, Ryan and Ethan. You, you were, you were wonderful. But I mean, just, just that really, that really turned me off. Mm -hmm. I've, uh, I still got a scorecard from playing golf with Kim Jong Un, and uh, he's a terrific golfer, like his dad was, and uh, he shot thirty eight under, including eleven hole in ones. And, uh, and and as you can imagine, though, the, the seven holes that he missed on his first try, you can imagine, uh, of course, he had them executed. So that was, uh, it was an interesting time. Sounds a lot like uh, our former president here in the U.S. <laughs> He's running out of golf holes at Miralago. <laughs> uh, what was and, what was really impressive about the uh, about the score of shooting eleven holes in one is that he only actually played on nine different um, holes. So it was it was pretty impressive. It's like ping pong. It bounced into the hole so hard that it bounced out four hundred yards. Into the second hole, uh, two holes in one in one shot. That's a it's a North Korean proverb, I think, is two holes in one with one ball. Um. <laughs> you know, I think uh, your your listeners and maybe our listeners may be confused why Dave and I were actually in um, uh, Seoul for this event. And uh, you did mention that the the TV was called the Gangnam Style uh, TV and. Uh, of course, uh, Gangnam Style is included in now. That's what I pol call Polka, one of Weird Al's um, Polka medleys. And um, Dave and I, we don't miss any event, even remotely related to Weird Al or one of his songs. So that is why we were there. Mm -hmm. oh, excellent. So um, obviously, the the details of that trip will be uh, captured in your your podcast. Where can people go to find uh, Dave and Ethan's two thousand inch Weird Al podcast? Well, we're the only Weird Al podcast that you need to know, so just weirdalpodcast.com will get you everything you need. 
That's fascinating. That's what Al says. <laughs> so uh, thank you for joining me here to talk about uh, Jurassic Park. Let me first, I guess, ask uh, for, first and foremost about the time they found those fossilized mosquitoes back in 1993. Do you have <laughs> memories of seeing the film? How about sharing it with youngsters? What are your, your thoughts of, of, uh, of the Jur- Jurassic Park film when it came out? Well, I'm very curious to hear uh, how Ethan saw the film in 1993 because he <laughs> okay, was okay. three years old at the time. Uh, but no, I actually, this is Dave, I actually remember um, seeing the film. I probably, I don't remember the exact date and the exact circumstances, but I do know I saw it in a theater and it probably would have been 1993. And I remember my first impression was just being blown away how realistic the dinosaurs were like the fact that you know they were animatronics just did not you know come across on the screen they looked like they were real i was wondering how they got real dinosaurs to actually show up in this film mm-hmm, mm-hmm. excellent so you're a 1993er that's great <laughs> <laughs> i don't know when i saw jurassic park one but i did see jurassic park two in theaters right when i was seven and uh you know the ripe age for uh being introduced to dinosaurs so what's your favorite line from uh, The Lost World, then? I couldn't even tell you which movie The Lost World is. Is that the second one? That's the second one, yeah. <laughs> to me, it was always, stay out of the long grass. <laughs> Anytime I see a field. <laughs> <laughs> I think my favorite line from the film is when the dinosaur goes, yeah. That's probably my favorite. Quote, unquote. <laughs> awesome. So I will point out that my wife is a a major dinosaur fan. Her nickname is Dr. Steggy, after, of course, the Stegosaurus. And any dinosaur fact that you want to know, uh, she was she can spit out on, you know, on command. So it, it's, uh, it's definitely, uh, in this household, we definitely have uh, watched pretty much every iteration of uh, the Jurassic Park trilogy that we, we, ha- that we could have uh, seen. So we're, we're, we're big dinosaur fans in, in my house. Right on. Me too. Super. Okay. <laughs> How about uh, the novel? Were you guys ever inspired to read uh, Jurassic Park, the novel, when it came out? I actually have read the novel, and I'm pretty sure I must have read it after, uh, uh, after, I, read, after I saw the, the film the first time, um, because I don't think I would have done it before. And I remember another time I was... <laughs> I was I, I think I actually picked it up because I was uh, staying over a friend's in a friend's uh, dorm room in college, and uh, he was sleeping in uh, a bit. And I was looking through his bookshelf, and I noticed that he had the uh, Jurassic Park novel up there. So I started reading it, and I was surprised uh, how different it was uh, than the actual um, the movie itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of notable uh, omissions. From the novel they did to, to make the, the movie come together in a, just two hours, yeah. I think one of the big parts that was overlooked is that uh, there's this element uh, that McCrichton is always uh, synonymous with is this element of hubris, that there's this great pride that uh, the, the megamaniacal, uh, you know, CEOs push for and that uh, they get their, you know, their, their butts handed to them for, by dinosaurs in this case because they, uh, they didn't, you know, have enough humility before nature. But I think Crichton gets a little too much credit for using this because like, when you design a character that's going to go and do something like build Jurassic Park as fast as possible to make as much money as possible, you kind of have to have a psycho. <laughs> so it's not like he was really exploring <laughs> yep. hubris. He was just exaggerating a character or else this sort of story doesn't come to fruition, right? And uh, But it's funny because these exasperated, accelerated, you know, almost satires of of um corporate ambition for the purposes of profits almost 
isn't satire anymore in a way, which is kind of bizarre <laughs> that these, you know, we just had the um, Ocean Gate, the submarine company just had that explain the Titanic wreckage. Oh, right. And it was like almost, the, you know, the same beats, you know, the, the these guys taking uh, tourists out. And really sadly, uh, it was so similar to what, what happened in Jurassic Park. And it's I just, didn't consider that. That's really cool. That's a cool comparison. Well, it's just, it seems like, uh, our present day is the 1990s worst nightmare or something like that. <laughs> like, all the things that we thought, nah, that won't happen is like totally reality now. And like to a point where like, I mean, Weird Al can't perform some of his songs on, on tour anymore because, because they, they're not, they're not satires anymore. It's terrible. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Speaking to... of, uh, of Al's tour, um, Ryan, I wanted to tell you a little story that is, somewhat uh dinosaur related yes um from uh last year i guess last fall or i yeah last fall um weird al so he was on a, a giant tour called the ridiculously the unfortunate return of the ridiculously self-indulgent <laughs> ill-advised vanity tour and so it was all original songs so there were there was no jurassic park um but one of his final tour stops of the 2022 leg was at carnegie music hall which um, was not Carnegie Hall. It was Carnegie Music Hall in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. uh, so we went to that show. We had a wonderful time. And as we're walking out of the venue, we are met with a life-size dinosaur uh, sculpture it, uh, named Dippy. Uh, Dippy the giant dinosaur. So we were thrilled and uh, very happy to have stumbled upon that. That's very interesting. If I... Which, I mean, so this is just off the top of my head. Dippy, I believe, two, two interesting bits, was on display at the uh, Museum of Natural History in London. And then she got taken down and is on tour, which would be why you would find her not in London now. And um, she's been replaced by, I think, a whale sculpture in uh, the Museum of Natural History in London. However, uh, the other cool mm. thing, the uh, at the beginning of Star Wars, when they're going through the desert, and there's that long uh, skeletal... Uh, snake-looking fixture that's in the sand as they're kind of going through the, the desert. The, the droids are walking around. Yeah. That is uh, modeled after the neck of uh, of that uh, Dippy the Diplodocus. Oh, how cool. Yeah. Oh, very cool. I think so. I think it's cool. <laughs> I don't know what I all think it is. But, uh, yeah, I, as I understand it, dinosaurs have often played uh, uh, some sort of inspiration for, for the creatures that wind up in Star Wars in some respects. Um, well, that's cool. Uh, speaking of, of, of going on tour and things like that, uh, I suppose, uh, like any regular person who's a fan of something, you guys have bought a few of his albums and attended a concert or two and built a Weird Al fan site and, and launched a Weird Al themed podcast and tattooed your bodies with Weird Al references and <laughs> ascension thousands of Weird Al memorabilia into a personal Weird Al museum and erected a pledge drive to get Weird Al a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and went to a few hundred more concerts and emailed him until he included you as extras into his latest full biopic, <laughs> Weird, the Al Yankovic story, available for streaming exclusively on Roku, the most inaccessible and regionally restricted app available on the internet. Um, when you go to concerts, what are some of your favorite songs or events or jokes? What are the, your, the things that you're looking forward to when Weird Al performs? It's, um, it's really always a magical experience to go to a Weird Al show and, and we are lucky enough to get to go to a lot of shows. Um, that is what we choose to spend our free time doing and Al, you know, doesn't tour all year, every year, so we have to really make it count when he is on the road. And um, it's it's funny because uh, since we've started doing the podcast a few years ago, 
Um, we have a fixture where, um, you know, typically once a week we put out a, a real quote unquote real episode. And then we also put out bonus episodes, which uh, most of them consist of actual just concert reviews. And for some of these uh, tours, we're seeing a show, a very similar show, or in some cases, the same exact show. 30 or 40 plus times, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, in the tour, but we still review the show each time. So, um, you know, I think what we look for and what we're excited about changes as the tour goes on. Uh, at the beginning of the tour, we're just excited to hear a new song or, or, or see something new. But by the end of the tour, we'll get really excited. Like, Oh, did you see they did the lights differently in this one song? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, like I only had a chance to to go to one. I never really thought about going to one, but one came up and I was like, "I'm going to take you. Uh, this would be something you would like." We went to the the Caesars Windsor Casino uh, in Windsor, Ontario. We arrived a bit early to walk around and stuff like that. And as you're going through the parking garage and standing in line, you begin to notice uh, some Weird Al fans are are kind of weird. Uh, and you see things like <laughs> vanity license plates, people who come from who knows where uh, in their in their Al cars. Uh, obviously they're dressed in Hawaiian shirts, they have crimped their hair, they wear big ridiculous glasses for those vintage Weird Al fans, and they stand in line weirdly. And, uh, <laughs> and Weird Al, like, he, he really endorses a lifestyle, and it's a real good fun chance to, to, to really let loose when you get to one of the concerts. And uh, as I was saying, it's like whatever the good version of PTSD is, after the concert, it's like you just get memories of it that keep striking back into your head. Uh, for weeks afterwards, you just you get this smile on your face, remembering, oh yeah, that callback with REM uh, at the end. You're like, oh, this is uh, just amazing. <laughs> the Weird Al fans have a term for that. It's called Al-induced hate. Is is what uh, oh. that that feeling is. You know that you, that when you, you you once you leave the Weird Al concert, you know all you can think about is the actual concert. So you're in that Allen-Deuce haze for quite a while. Yes. Um, sometimes it lasts hours, sometimes it lasts days and weeks and months. <laughs> it's, it's well, it's tangible. It's for real. Okay, I didn't know there was a word for it, but I'm glad it's been diagnosed as <laughs> a real thing. <laughs> it's not a psychosis. <laughs> you guys are incredible fans. In an alternate universe, you guys would be uh, still fans, but maybe if you were bit by like a radioactive spider that liked Hanson or Ricky Martin, who knows what your fandom could be like. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, how is doing the show, uh, obviously, it sounds like you've met a bunch of incredible people. You've obviously uh, got to meet some some famous people along the way and people connected with it. What's it like to have entered into the, the this fandom through the podcast and got uh, been able to circulate and meet and, uh, and become like a bigger part of what, what people know about in terms of Weird Al and, and sharing all the, the, the fun that you've had with it? What's uh, How's it, I guess, changed your lives in a way? I think uh, we should go back in time a little bit uh, with that question, Dave. I think you should talk about how you got into Al um, and the community that you were a part of, because Dave was an OG Weird Al okay. super fan, and you know he's he's a much older man than I am. Uh, so uh, I think I think my experience uh, in the Weird Al fandom changed a lot more uh, since the podcast, just because I got introduced to a lot of people who I didn't know that I think Dave had already known for mm. years. So. Um, is that fair, Dave? Sure. I mean, I, I mean, if we were going really far back, I mean, my first exposure to Weird Al uh, that I can remember was actually hearing "Eat It" on the radio. Uh, I remember my. I remember I 
was a Michael Jackson fan and uh, you know loved Thriller and Beat It, and uh, my mother knew that. So when she heard this other song on the radio that sounded a lot like Beat It, you know, she called me in the room and, and said, "You have to listen to this." And I immediately fell in love with it because I realized, wow, you can actually uh, can actually laugh at you know songs as well as you know enjoy them for other reasons. And I think that's when I my first became a Weird Al fan. You know, in 1992 was when I started or a little bit after that is when I started getting online um, and start joining online communities. Uh, one of the original ones was a IRC community called <laughs> alt.music.weird-al. And uh, that's where I met a lot of uh, great uh, Weird Al fans and friends who are people I'm still friends with today. I still see them all the time at Weird Al concerts and even outside of Weird Al concerts. Over time, you know, that morphed into a forum. Uh, it was a forum called World of Weird Al Yankovic Forum, which I was an administrator on, but it was uh, created by this uh, gentleman named Wizzy who, out of the Netherlands. And that was uh, the go-to place for Weird Al fans for many years. Through that, um, you know, through the Weird Al fandom and stuff, I, I eventually... Uh, I have tattoos of, of Weird Al and all of his band members, so I was... Uh, Brought on a couple television shows for that, specifically on, on MSNBC and VH1. They flew me out to Los Angeles for the VH1 one, which is where I, uh, for the first time, got to walk down Hollywood Boulevard. And at that point, I realized that Weird Al did not have a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame. I know, can you believe it? Um, at that <laughs> point, uh, my, my friend uh, Vicky and I, uh, Vicky DeVries, Rhymes with Cheese, uh, helped uh, launch the Weird Al Star Fund, which uh, raised all the necessary funds, entirely donated by Weird Al fans, and you know, went through all the uh, the paperwork and all the, the nightmares of getting Weird Al a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, which uh, he now has one, so people walking down Hollywood Boulevard can see, see Weird Al's Hollywood Walk of Fame star. Well, let's see. Oh, there's so much. And then... Um, at some point, uh, Ethan and I, we would be on the phone for many, many hours uh, just talking about Weird Al, and we were like, you know what, we need to share this conversation with everybody. So that was sort of the impetus to, uh, to starting the podcast. Ethan has a background in uh, radio, so that was uh, helped me. I don't have a background in radio or anything like that. I just, I just have the background in Weird Al, and Ethan is, is an incredible, incredibly knowledgeable about Weird Al as well. Um, so we just seemed to click together and that's when we launched our podcast originally back in May, 2019. And we've been going, um, nonstop since over 200 episodes. What's crazy too is, um, when I was a kid, I, you know, I, I was a big Weird Al fan and, you know, other people in my life were Weird Al fans, but they're not like super fans. So it's, you can't really have, you don't have that same kind of connection you can, you know, so when I um, when I met Dave, it was just it was incredible because, you know, it's someone that I can talk to on this deep, uh, intimate level where we, we just know these references. We, you know, we we know the differences between, you know, the different versions of the CD art, you know, depending on, yeah. you know, which, which uh, distributor, well, you know, that kind of stuff. And so it's you're, you know, we're able to have those kind of deeper sorts of conversations. And I think through the podcast. I've met so many incredible uh, Weird Al superfans just across the globe, uh, scattered around, who, you know, a lot of them are friends, and a couple of them I'd consider some of my closest friends. 
Um, it's just, it's incredible when you have that kind of Venn diagram overlap. It's like, oh, you, you like Weird Al. You really like Weird Al. You really, <laughs> really, really like Weird Al. Oh, and you collect Weird Al. Oh, and you go to a bunch of shows. And, you know, um, so it's, it's, it's really great. And, and um, you know, we, through the podcast, we also started a, a Facebook group, um, which is over at group.2000inch.com uh, is like a short link. And so we just like have, a, you know, it's a couple hundred people in there, but they're all like hardcore Weird Al fans. So we just have so much fun posting stuff and making references to stuff. And it always uh, puts a smile on my face uh, getting to interact with, with other like-minded individuals. So I have to ask when you, uh, so as, as big fans of, of, uh, of Weird Al and through this community building and through the, all the connections you've been able to make, you were invited to be extras in the, the Weird Al Yankovic story that, that was put out. I can't remember the full name of it. It always trips me up. But uh, how many how many like fans were also extras in the movie when you guys were there? Um, it was just us. Yeah, it was just <laughs> us. It's it's weird. The Al Yankovic story uh, is the title, and um, yeah, it was it was pretty incredible because we you know we showed up. Um, you know, there, there's a whole rigmarole. We if people are interested in the the actual full deep story, we we have like a ten episode series on our podcast that goes through every waking second of it. Um, but, um, essentially we showed up and it was us and then just a bunch of people who were just, um, background actors professionally. So, mm-hmm. you know, they, they were like, oh, cool. We're doing a weird out thing, but they weren't there like freaking out brain exploding like Dave and I were. <laughs> <laughs> and you got to meet the cast, the director, Al, you get to, I mean, wow, what a, what a really awesome opportunity that was. Yeah, it's great. So we're actually in the scene for people who've seen the movie. We're in the scene. It's it's the uh, biker bar scene. Ethan and I are up front and center, um, right up against the stage. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's the scene where um, Weird Al or Doctor Demento first discovers Weird Al. So it was pretty cool. We were in a scene with uh, Daniel Radcliffe, which was awesome. We were in you know the, in that same scene is Patton Oswalt, Rain Wilson, uh, Michael McKeon. So it's it's just like uh, all these celebrities were in the room with us, which was incredible. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure equally as cool for them to get to be in a room with us. Yeah. Well, that's just amazing. (laughs) What a story. And and yeah, all the details, really interesting story. Everything you would ever want to know about being a really cool extra on a really awesome set uh, was regaled very accurately. And I think extraordinarily well detailed. (laughs) I spent a lot of time making sure that was precise. And it sounds like you did it right then and there. And then... Uh, had to wait until the movie came out to release it, but uh, oh yeah, yeah. So we recorded the we were in the film. Our actual recording date was Valentine's Day, two thousand twenty-two, and um, as soon as we got home from California, we just we sat down over the next couple of days and just for hours and hours just recorded yeah. every <laughs> last detail we could remember. Is that Al Hayes? What do they call it? <laughs> the That's right. Al, Al Hayes. <laughs> yeah. You can't shake it. So, so, so the, the the funny thing about this, Ryan, is that. Uh, it, although we were we were never explicitly told we we couldn't tell people we were going to be mm-hmm. in the movie. Ethan and I made the uh, decision not to tell anybody other than you know people who needed to know on a need to know basis uh, that we were going to parents, be parents, spouse, you know, yeah, that yeah, kind yes, of. Yes. Why am I missing um, Valentine's so, Day? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we had to. Uh, we chose to not only uh, you know obviously we went through this amazing experience being on the set. Of, of a Weird Al movie, but uh, we then had to, or chose to, keep quiet until the actual movie came out 
months, months later about it. So uh, it was eating us up inside uh, not to uh, be able to tell everybody we wanted about this. But yeah, it was uh, uh, it was pretty cool because, uh, you know, the day that uh, it dropped, I had so many messages of, oh my gosh, you are in that film. I see you. You were kind of sad. Is that Ethan standing next to you? It was it was crazy. It was, it was amazing. Well, I'm glad it, it paid off. And, and what a tasteful decision, I think, too. So that, that was a good choice by you guys. We thought it would be a, a fun surprise. Yeah. And, and really our intention was wait until the film comes out, before, you know, and let people just notice it. Um, but we were uh, blindsided a little bit because a few months after recording, they dropped the first teaser trailer. And we were in the teaser trailer. So people, people were like, hey. <laughs> so at least, you know, in the continuity of our podcast, we, we just were like, oh, this, I don't know who those guys are. <laughs> look, those, those tough bikers look handsome, but I don't know who they are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, that's fun. What a cool story uh, to, to share. So, Dave, uh, were, did you get to attend any of the concerts during the 1994 Alapalooza tour? I did. I did. Um, uh, I attended one concert One concert during that tour. It was August 22nd, 1994 at Toad's Place in New Haven, Connecticut. All right. Oh, cool. And, uh, yeah, and the intro, that was my second Weird Al concert ever. My first one was back in July uh, 1992, July 11th, 1992. But, so the interesting thing about that, the interesting thing about that concert was that was the very first time that I got to actually meet uh, the drummer, John Bermuda Schwartz. Oh, cool. That's awesome. I, I was, you know, I think we, we mentioned this briefly, but I, I was born a bit later than Dave, so I was three years old when Dave was going to his second concert. Um, I didn't actually get to go to a concert until I was 10, or it was nine, turning nine, almost 10, in uh, the year 2000. And what's pretty incredible is Dave was also at that show, which was my first show. Sure. What, yeah, what are the odds? Only 100%. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's go. Well, I ask because you have the uh, the Alapalooza t-shirt, and sometimes people get these t-shirts at concert, although it looks a little, little. it's in very good condition for it to be an authentic 1994 shirt, if that makes sense. It, it, it isn't an authentic 1994 wow. shirt, and... It, and uh, and if I turn around and put my back to you, you will see the uh, fake tour dates on the back. But at the time when Weird Al was putting out uh, concert uh, shirts, he was using fake and uh, very funny tour dates on the back of his uh, concert sh shirt. So, but yes, the, the shirt I'm wearing is uh, from the 1994 Alapalooza tour. Wow. Uh, it is authentic, vintage uh, Weird Al t-shirt. Well, if I took care of anything as well as you're taking care of that shirt... Uh, I, I've never thrown anything out. That's incredible. Well, so, so right here's one thing you have to understand. Uh, Ethan and I are collectors, and uh, as such, um, we like to keep our items in pristine condition. So actually, I believe it or not, I own more than one uh, of this concert T-shirt, uh, one that I will wear and one that goes uh, in perfect condition into the collection. What's the expression? So, one uh, to play, one to, one to display? <laughs> <laughs> one to keep and one to have. Right. Um, well, I have, a, I guess, a collection kind of question. Um, there's a long-standing tradition in Linnaean binomial nomenclature to abbreviate the genus name and spell out the species name of a scientifically described organism. It's a centuries-old methodology and can be popularly recognized when we speak of dinosaurs like the Tyrannosaurus rex. Tyrannosaurus is a genus, rex is the species, but it's commonly abbreviated to simply 
T-Rex. And of course, there's a great family of Tyrannosaurus species that we've all become familiar with, along with T-Rex, including T-Square, T-Set, which is commonly found with T-Pot and T-Cups. And very fittingly, there's T-Shirt as well. And um, <laughs> I want to ask about uh, the Yankasaurus T-Shirt, because that looks awesome. <laughs> Can you could you describe what it is? I'm gonna I'm gonna steal a picture of it and, and show people. But if there were anything, I was like, that's that's the shirt to get in frame and put up, and it looks awesome. Yeah, so there's, there's actually uh, two versions of that shirt. Is that right? Uh, the, yeah, the original one uh, came out on that uh, 1994 tour for Alapalooza, um, and that is a white T-shirt with uh, the the Yankosaurus on the front. Um, and then later on, he uh, which. Tour with it. Was it Ethan? Was it this most recent one where he actually reissued that shirt as a black T-shirt? Um, I think yeah, I think it was um, uh, Strings Attached tour. Strings Attached. So it was a 2019 tour where uh, he reissued that shirt as as a uh, as a black T-shirt. So uh, there's two versions now uh, that you need to track down for your collection. <laughs> okay. If you're going to be a completionist like Dave and I are. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Well, it's it, of all the shirts, that one's really rad. Like I, the the Weird Al logo and and things like that. The marketing materials for the Alapalooza album. I mean, I didn't know what Lollapalooza was. I had no clue back then. But um, so that didn't hit. But the, certainly the the logo was unmistakable, and and that sold the the record just like it sold the the movie. So, so Ryan, I got I got to ask you as a dinosaur uh, aficionado, do you know what a Yankosaurus is? Can you give me a, a description of one? Oh, I'd have to pull up the picture here. <laughs> uh, oh, good grief. Well, I will tell you what Weird Al defines a Yankosaurus as, and this is on the back of the uh, white T-shirt from the uh, 1994 tour. It, he describes, he says, Yankosaurus, a noun, a rare bipedal dinosaur yep. from the prehistoric age, mm, okay. post-Jurassic, <laughs> primarily feeds off pop music stars and popular culture. It is impossible to predict when or where this creature will strike next. Awesome. This sounds like a sister taxon to uh, something we had in Canada called the Pokeroo. <laughs> and it always yeah. it always appeared when you uh, when uh, <laughs> you least had expected it, and then is uh, but nobody could ever find it was like Snuffleupagus in a way. It, um, nobody could ever see ah, it okay. for a long time. Uh, I'll send you a picture of Pokeroo. You'll love it. <laughs> it. It looks like the Yankosaurus, <laughs> bipedal, obviously uh, ferociously carnivorous, and uh, <laughs> 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 uh, so um, the Alapalooza album comes out in '93, towards the end of '93. How yep. did you guys receive that album? What did you think when it came out? Uh, I didn't get it when it came out because mm. uh, um, I was a little bit later. Dave's a dinosaur compared to me. Uh, <laughs> way to use that um so <laughs> i loved it i mean you know as, as a kid hearing a song about jurassic park by weird al like it's just that's like some of the greatest things you could possibly have so i loved it yeah for me it was uh it was quite a treat uh, actually uh discovering alapalooza for the first time i had known it was out but i hadn't picked it up on the uh, first day or anything like that like i do now um, I was still in college. I was actually um, looking for a birthday gift for my cousin, and uh, and he is uh, the one who actually uh, helped uh, steer me along into the Weird Al fan that I am today by uh, by lending me his uh, his Weird Al records as as a youngster uh, to play <laughs> over and over again. But 
I went to the store with him, letting letting him decide to choose his own his own birthday gift. Of course, as we you do when you go into any music store, you first thing you do is you walk over to the comedy section, you check to see what Weird Al records they have, and uh, we all do that, brought, right? Right, Ryan? Yeah, it's the only way to find him. We we uh, we were checking to see uh, what they had, and we noticed that they had two copies of Alapalooza, which neither one of us had. So not only did I have to buy myself a copy, but I had to buy my cousin a copy for his uh, birthday gift. And we immediately went back to our to the dorm room and played that album over or played that CD over and over again. It was it was great. I mean, I loved it. I loved it at the time. A big Aerosmith fan, so it was nice to see the uh, Aerosmith. Uh, parody on there as well which was a surprise to me i did not know that was coming uh that was wonderful <laughs> yeah that's all rocks well in, in the vein of uh jurassic park in your podcast in episode 96 inch you guys had guest mike nelson who's the former host and writer of mystery science theater 3000 yeah founder of the popular riff tracks franchise who uh produced hundreds of joke-filled commentary tracks for blockbusters like jurassic park and mr nelson produced uh, the jurassic park commentary with Weird Al, which is a, a fun way to tie it all together. Did you learn anything about, I guess, Weird Al's impressions and connectivity with Jurassic Park in your conversation with Mike Nelson or um, or in your time following his career? I think, you know, I don't think Al is going to make a song about something unless he's a fan of it. You know, so Al is, uh, you know, I, I, I don't <laughs> I don't know that I can yeah, it's hard say, to say 100% that Al is a, a big Jurassic Park fan, but I'd say he at least uh, enjoys the franchise. You know, he certainly had a lot of fun with, with the song and you know, watching that riff tracks where Al, you know, riffs on the film is, mm-hmm. is really a fun way to go back and rewatch uh, Jurassic Park because yeah. it's it's a completely new experience. I don't know. I'm trying to think. That was like 500 years ago when we. <laughs> <laughs> Geologically speaking, we're rounding down. I think. <laughs> well, I looked at, I checked it out, and uh, there was a couple jokes that uh, specifically spoke to to either not just the movie, but. Uh, to the novel, to to Weird Al, and to his song. Uh, the first was a, a reference, I think he made some joke about the lawyer wetting his pants as a joke in the Rift Tracks commentary, which, uh, if it happens in the film, I don't know if it's explicitly portrayed, but in the novel, the character Ed Regis is so scared he wets his pants. He says, quote, he could feel his knees begin to shake uncontrollably, his trousers flapping like flags. Jesus, he was frightened. And then shortly thereafter, Ed Regis felt the spreading warmth in his trousers. He'd peed in his pants. Um, so... That I, that must be a reference, or I don't know. I'd like to think that they had read the novel, and that was just a little nudge in the riff tracks that they included. Uh, another joke they had here was referring to Weird Al. Mike Nelson says, as Nedry is stealing the embryos, do you remember the joke? Do you think he can pull it off, Al, or is he just too white and Nedry? <laughs> <laughs> referring, referring to his huge head, white and nerdy. And um, yeah, there's a part where they're driving along, and Al's like, you know, Jurassic Park in the light, not so frightening. Which is uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> direct link to his Jurassic Park is frightening in the dark line. Um, right. <laughs> so catching up with Mike Nelson must have been a lot of fun. Um, oh, so much fun. And I think oh, there's yeah. something about uh, when Weird Al does the much music takeover and when he makes his music videos and even when he's recording the songs that is in the same humorous vein as the riff tracks. He's always got some goofy sound effect or some, some, um, some you know, needling that he does to the track to make it like there's a hand fart or armpit sounds or burping he's always got some little dig that he's adding in there kazoos and something goofy and i feel like that is in the same vein as the riff tracks just adding a little something unexpected on top of what you're already getting to to 
amplify the just absurdity of of the of the parody and things like that. So, <laughs> so I think there's something a lot of fun with that. Yeah, and I, I think it's always you know what's great about Alice music and also for riff tracks is just not taking things too seriously. It's like yeah, it's a song, and it's not like they're they're trashing the movies. Uh, I mean, some of them maybe they do, but in my experience of the, the riff tracks I've heard, they're they're not trashing the, the films, and I don't think. Uh, in any of Al's songs where he does a parody, he's trashing the original artist. I think he's oh. just sort of, you know, shining a, a, a silly light on it. <laughs> I think when I think about the sound effects, though, the the number one, the, I only saw one clip where Weird Al was talking about picking the correct sound effect as specifically as, and maybe you'll know this one, he said he was spending a little extra time and they had a little uh, vignette of, of him selecting just the right sounds for Weasel Stomping Day, making sure that <laughs> the weasels being stomped were as crunchy and gushy as, as humorously possible. So, <laughs> Yeah, like ripping up different uh, vegetables and crunching, you know, celery and things like that to get all the bones breaking. Yeah, no, he's... he's uh... <laughs> I think he did a good job on that weasel. Yeah. Thing day. I mean, I, I've never, I've never stomped the weasel, but that's imagine, I imagine that's exactly what it would sound like. If I did. Mm. And authenticity is really important in, uh, in in everything we do. So that was really good. So getting more into the the, the song, into the video, uh, the lyrics to the song Jurassic Park aren't especially scathing nor satirical. It's sort of just a movie recap, but the music video is like watching The Naked Gun. It is packed to the gills <laughs> with gags. Um, now, I've heard Al joke that when he was asked, has fame changed you? His answer was, well, I mean, I was an overbearing mega, megalomaniacal control freak before my fame, so not really, no. Um, so I asked, you know, the music video is so zany, it's so filled with jokes and gigs. How much of this final product would be from Al's vision, do you suppose? Like, uh, how many voices might be involved in the creative process of, you know, preparing the creature design and all these crazy references, do you think? I think, you know, what Al's, it, what Al's really good at is, A, being in charge mm -hmm. and coming up with jokes, but he's also really good at um, getting people to just shine and do, you know, share, share their talents, which is exactly how I think about like his band, you know, those band members um, are extremely talented people. And Al has, you know, been able to throughout his career, just really help amplify them to just, you know, make just incredible music and exact, you know, exact sound alikes for uh, the songs they parody or the styles that they're, you know, doing a pastiche of. But uh, I would have to imagine that, you know, I don't know that I, maybe Dave has some more specific information, but my gut would say that Al was very involved with coming up with the jokes, but I think, you know, he also would have given the artists the freedom to, you know, include their own gags, include their own mm -hmm. um, take and, you know, how they want it to look. And um, that would be my impression. But uh, Dave, I don't know if you know anything <laughs> different or have a different impression. Yeah, no, that, that would be my thought as well, is that uh, Weird Al probably had a uh, something in mind when he, uh, you know, what he wanted the video to look like, and then he put it in the hands of, uh, of the animators, uh, Mark Osborne and Scott Nordland, uh, to, to, to put this whole thing together. Um, it's mostly a, a claymation video. There is, you know, other, some, some other, you know, uh, non-claymation parts to it but it is it, definitely it was a uh, weird al's first uh animated entirely animated music video so um this was sort of a departure for him as well as far as uh music videos went so uh, yeah i don't know uh, specifically mm -hmm. i don't ever remember hearing al say you know how much of 
of that was was you know his and how much he left up to you know Mark and Scott to uh, to sort of improvise on. But I imagine um, knowing how involved Weird Al is in any other project that he that has his name on it, that uh, that I would think that uh, a lot of if not all of those jokes in that that music video came from his mind mm-hmm. or, or definitely had his <laughs> blessing. There's certainly a uniformity between from video to video to video that. You know, this isn't an outlier by any means. It's consistent with uh, the Al brand. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, it is weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird it's and it's hilarious. Video. Yeah, because it's, it's so filled with so many different sight gags that, that it's just, you, you can't see them all on, like, the first watch. It, it's it's incredible. Yeah. Like, just, like, callbacks to everything, you know. Like, even, like, the, the one scene that, that cracks me up is... Uh, the velociraptor trying to get into the locked door, and uh, he's banging and banging, and then he kind of like has this aha moment. Oh yeah, duh! I have the keys to it. And he pulls out a set of keys, and he starts fumbling through the keys so he can unlock the door. And it's just like like silly things like that, you know, that you expect to be in a Weird Al music video, you know, that that make this video so great. That's a good point. Yeah, there's a couple that I love. There's the uh, investigating the DNA through the binocular telescopes. Uh, they joke that they're peeping in on Mr. DNA while he's in the shower. I thought was just awesome. <laughs> but like it zooms past, there's like a dino dog chow bags. There's a like, a yep. dark, you have to, you're right, watch it more than once. Uh, when the dinosaurs are roaming wild, there's also a chicken running around <laughs> just at their feet. So uh, there's one part where there's a sauropod dancing in a tutu like a ballerina. Do you think that that might be a reference to the Smells Like Nirvana video? <laughs> I hadn't made that connection before, but but yes, you do have the uh, janitor in the uh, tutu in that music video, so uh, maybe. <laughs> but Weird Al, it wouldn't surprise me. Call back to a previous music video. <laughs> I was just going to say, I, I love that sequence, and um, they did um, add the Jurassic Park song to his um, Strings Attached Tour, where he did every show with a, a full orchestra, and they also had backup singers oh. um, on stage. And so, you know, while when you ex- see a, a full-fledged Weird Al show, you expect some costumes and dancing and lights and videos. And it was really great to have extra people on stage to add to that. And one of my favorite parts of the show was during that kind of montage of the, the animated dinosaur. I don't know. What kind of dinosaur was it that has the tutu? Uh, it, was a, it was like a Brachiosaurus or something like that, yeah. Brachiosaurus, yeah. Uh, that whole like segment, uh, the the uh, background singers, they kind of emulated those dances oh, yeah? during that part, oh, which that's was too much uh, fun. always hilarious for me. There's kind of a trope where the, the dinosaurs aren't really like feral or wild. They're uh, they're actually quite civilized, and so when they after they finish eating, they'll use like a napkin uh like have high tea afterwards or something like that i thought that was really good one of the other references i want to point out and uh just because i'm a professional wrestling fan as well uh uh, shout out to uh the wwf uh wrestling ring where the uh, i guess it's the tyrant Sirius will will climb up the uh, the the, the ring (laughs) barbed wire yeah the barbed wire yes or the electrical fence yeah yeah unmistakably yeah, uh, and it was still WWF before it rebranded because the uh, World Wildlife Fund <laughs> didn't like the association. <laughs> <Right. laughs> uh, I like that the Brachiosaur gives Tyrannosaurus the Heimlich maneuver, 
and it coughs up Barney's head. <laughs> uh, it's just really interesting. And uh, one of my favorite ones, it's just a sight gag, and it's really easy to overlook, is as uh, that helicopter is flying away at the end, the dinosaurs are waving goodbye. One has, like, a sign that says, you know, don't forget to write. And the one's waving its arm, and it gets tired, and it holds its elbow up with its other arm, <laughs> which is so relatable when it takes somebody too long to go. <laughs> so as many of the gags we mentioned, uh, you know, reveal, there's plenty of violence in this music video, and rightly so, it's being adapted from a horror-esque movie where, where people are eaten by dinosaurs, but there's something about Weird Al that's always felt, you know, youthful. But at, uh, the content has never really been intended for children. His sense of humor falls in that gray area of showing you something truly disturbing. You know, the, the joke is in that area where you're feeling uncomfortable. It's the, I'm the kind of guy I laughs at a funeral sort of humor. And um, I had an English professor, his name was Dr. Dilworth. And uh, he described laughter as a response to something terrible, whether it's terrifying or terrific. There's this Latin word, terere, and it meant being filled with fear. And we often respond to terrible things with a laugh and we instinctively see what's awful about it just like that and it's this coping mechanism in a way and it always has been and in any case Al definitely rides that line of fearsome and fabulous to, to go for his laughs and uh, there are there are no shortage of just bloody squishy things <laughs> that happen in this video for the sake of humor uh, yeah a couple of things jump to mind uh... Number one, uh, when Weird Al uh, picks up his sh Hawaiian shirt to show that he has a giant uh, <laughs> dinosaur bite uh, out of out of the side of his torso, yes, that, is one of, that, that is one of my favorite uh, favorite scenes in in that uh, music video. Yes. The other one being uh, where he uh, picks up uh, an unfortunate uh, person who, and uh, the dinosaur, or when the dinosaur picks up an unfortunate person who's about to get eaten, and the dinosaur takes out his salt shaker and uh, <laughs> sprinkles some salt on the person, you know, just to get him the right flavor before he uh, chomps him in half and you know eats him up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I always love that when uh, when we get inside the uh, the stomach, there's the the teenager selling T-shirts. He's got a summer job. <laughs> yeah, just crazy. Um, there's one where a, uh, a brachiosaur steps on somebody, somebody and it squishes red. It like squirts out the bottom of its foot. <laughs> yeah. And then he looks at it and it's like a squashed pizza on the bottom of his foot. And the eyes blink and then they turn to X's. <laughs> so we like actually watch the life leave this guy's body <laughs> as, a, as a dinosaur is like, ooh, I stepped in something. <laughs> Um, Which is so brilliant that you know Al did this in claymation because you you know yeah. if, even if it was animated uh, you know that, that might be a little too far but when it's you know Play-Doh and clay like it's you can kind of get away with that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> so crazy there's a whole bunch of like vertebrae when people get ripped up like you can see the bones sticking out of them and stuff like it. just right it never ends and now you don't see intestines which is in the book. Uh, but <laughs> maybe I'm okay with that. Um, so Al's sense of humor sometimes veers in this direction, as and we, we hear some of it in his like unrequited love ballads, where there's like this comedic trope of singing something sweetly, but the lyrics are actually horrifying. Uh, and this goes back to his earlier works with like Melanie and Good Old Days from the even worse album they come to mind. And then there's like the role reversal where Al is dumped and he's like this tortured soul, like in such a groovy guys kind of one. One more minute is certainly one, and then it you know I think. One of the most popular would be "You Don't Love Me Anymore." Certainly, is about uh, uh, <laughs> really, really <laughs> dysfunctional relationships. Uh, why, why do you think Al's humorous but also like graphic exploration of physical and emotional trauma has helped fans feel closer to him? 
<laughs> I want to point out that that you know, as as uh, gory as you're making all this sound, that Weird Al is is actually um, extremely family friendly artist. Yes, uh, yes, that's yeah, a... yeah, uh, w- which is incredible. And uh, I've heard Weird Al, you know, sort of address this um, in interviews. Uh, that he doesn't specifically um, like cater towards like sometimes you'll see uh, people say oh he caters toward ten year old kids or whatever he doesn't specifically cater towards anybody no. he just does what he thinks is funny so so that's why uh, you're getting um, what's coming out uh, uh, in these music videos and these songs you're getting um, what Weird Al thinks is funny which he's got an incredible comedic mind so. Mm-hmm. If he thinks it's funny, then other people are going to think it's funny, and we think it's funny. So that's what uh, <laughs> I think. That's what that's what uh, this is all boiling down to. His music is funny. That, that's what for sure. Is. I think, the, yeah, he exaggerates it to such a degree that it's supposed to be ridiculous, and uh, and I think we share in that. It, it's not something that yeah should happen to any person. Like none of this stuff, <laughs> and, and I think we would agree that it probably doesn't happen to anybody. But. Uh, it feels and like... Weird Al's humor is, is, and Weird Al's humor is smart humor. Yeah. Uh, um, you know, he doesn't. He's like, you know, yes, he'll have references to, you know, uh, flatulence or something, you know, <laughs> occasionally in a song or whatever. But he doesn't rely on that. Like, you know, um, like you know, his his humor. You know, sometimes you can listen to something and then it takes you uh, a minute or so later to, oh, now I get that joke. And I'm thinking you uh, brought up, I think you brought up the, the song One More Minute with mm-hmm. the uh, gas station of love uh, <laughs> and I have to use the self-service pumps line, um, which is one that I'm thinking of that a lot of Weird Al fans didn't quite get that reference. Uh, until they were until, older, yeah. So much older or, 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 or uh, maybe they're getting it now for the first time as they're mm-hmm. thinking about it. And that's not a well he's gone back to either. Like, you're right. He is... Um... He, he he has parameters in which he plays, and but he doesn't seem to take uh, any interest in, in exploring beyond them. There there are limits that uh, a lot of comedians they have their spheres, and and Al has his, and his is a good natured one, that's for sure. I, I was just going to speak to um, you know how um, Al's music is family friendly. Mm. In his personal life, he also uh, does not swear um, to the point where there was a New York Times article where the author said. He interviewed Al's wife, and she said, "In you know all their years of marriage, she's never hear, heard him swear." Um, uh, Dave and I interviewed uh, Joel Miller, who was a college uh, best friend of Al's and best man at his wedding, and someone he's still very close to. And we asked him. We said, "You know, um, we did like a three or four hour interview with him. It was really extensive, and and um, he was opening up about a lot of stuff." We're like, "You know, Joel, tell us, have you ever heard Al swear?" Mm. And he. He, he was able to come up with three times in his life that he um, believes that Al swore, but he says that Al uh, remembers those differently. So <laughs> <laughs> Contentious. <laughs> so who knows? He, he may not have never sworn. And, and uh, you know, I think that's, that's quite fine. And um, I think it's, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of a, I don't think he he doesn't swear to be clean. I think that's just what he likes. Mm-hmm, he, mm-hmm. he just you know uh, doesn't mean that Al avoids you know stuff with swearing. You know he's a big fan of comedy and you know of all sorts. Um, so he's not like plugging his ears. You know if he's watching you know a movie where they're swearing, but it's just yeah, that's just how he he uh, prefers to make his content. Well, I uh, when I asked the question uh, earlier about about why all that all that 
you know, really horrible stuff is my interpretation has, has come to, and I think it's this good natured element that uh, you guys have identified that it, it looks like it's a way that people can laugh together, sharing in the observation that, geez, that was just awful. And then we're in that shared space, understanding it. Uh, and it's like almost like a hug at a funeral in a way that there's something terrible, but we, we know it is that, and we're there to laugh at it together. And it's almost unifying in that way. I, I found that in, to me, all of exploring that wacky stuff is for the sake of generating laughter to bring people together. And I thought that was more in, in line with what was going, as opposed to just like, I don't know, making a Rob Zombie movie, you know? <laughs> Which Al was in a Rob Zombie movie. No, go on. What? Tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, he has a cameo in Halloween 2. Uh, Rob Zombie did two Halloween films, and Al does make a cameo in the second one. Okay, right on. Does he? <laughs> I guess he doesn't swear in it, but like, <laughs> that's the well. Don't spoil it. I'll, I'll look that movie up. As... Oh, I don't know if I'm Rob Zombie. Okay, all right. We are almost out of time. I wanted to ask about uh, the name for your show and its explicit nod to Frank's Two Thousand Inch TV. How long did it take for Frank's Two Thousand Inch TV to make an impression on you? And uh, what is it? I suppose about that song that like bewitches itself to every sensitive heart who listens to it. <laughs> I think um, a lot of Weird Al fans, um, Dave and myself included, are just, we love that song. Yeah. Frank's 2000-inch TV is just, it's funny, it's, you know, it's catchy, and it's just a really good song. And um, so, you know, we didn't sit down to come up with our, our podcast name, We're like, oh, let's try and make it, you know, Frank's 2000-inch related. Um, we just we we essentially came up with like dozens of potential titles and we just like it just we loved how ridiculous uh the idea of a 2000 inch podcast was because you, like, you can't measure a podcast in in inches uh but we found a way uh that's why each episode we put out is a, a another inch and um you know when we launched the podcast in 2019 um the first tour stop that Dave and I were on together, we had a meet and greet with Al and uh, he admitted to us that he loves the podcast, which oh, blew yeah. us away. And uh, he also said that he can't, he couldn't wait to be a guest on episode 2000 inch. So okay. uh, we still have a, another 34, 35 years before Al uh, <laughs> is a guest on our podcast. But luckily within the podcast, uh, our, our universe of our podcast um, time travel is a thing, so you can hear a preview of that um, of episode that interview yeah. that we do with him in the future. Ah, interesting. Well, you can always like adjust yeah. the quality and the duration of an episode and get to two thousand much quicker. <laughs> <laughs> that was my thought. I mean, there's nothing wrong with like ten second long podcast episodes, right? <laughs> Actually, ours would just be our our theme song, which, uh, by the way, we haven't mentioned yet, but our theme song. Uh, was written by a Grammy Award winner, the uh, Grammy Award winning Jim Kimo West, who has uh, been Weird Al's guitar player since the very beginning. Uh, he, he's actually a composer of our theme song, our podcast theme song, which we think is pretty cool. Uh, composer and performer. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it sounds cool. It's and, really uh, good. Yeah. <coughs> and, well, uh, Dave, you got to say the coolest thing about our, our podcast theme song. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so actually on the... Uh, yeah, Dave's looking it up. But the first show on the uh, unfortunate return of the ridiculously self-indulgent, ill-advised vanity tour was in Poughkeepsie, New York. Dave and I were both at that show. Of course, we have to be at the first show of the tour. And it was really close to both of us. 
Yeah, April 26, 2022. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is, you know, the, the first tour. And we like being at, the, the, you know, not only because uh, it, it's a brand new tour, but we like being at the first show on any tour because, uh, you know, then you can remain spoiler free as to what the set list is. And uh, we are we are sitting in the show and he's going through his set list and they're all original songs. And then he brings uh, up uh, and he says, I'd like to showcase one of my band members and uh, the Grammy Award winning Jim Kimo West. I'm going to let him do one of his original pieces. And we're thinking this is great because uh, for those who don't know, Kimo won a Grammy Award for his uh, work as a Hawaiian slack key guitarist. Um, so we're thinking. Oh, we're going to get some nice, beautiful Hawaiian slack key music. Uh, this is a treat. He's never done anything like this in concert before, but this is this is a the type of tour to do that on. And now, Kimo uh, bur- bursts out his original song, Dave Ethan's 2000 Years Weird Al podcast theme song, which... <laughs> Live on stage with Al's full band playing, with Al singing lyrics. Lin-Manuel Miranda and Paul Rudd were in the audience, uh, along with Dave and I. It was just... <laughs> That's amazing. Our mind is still blown. Yeah, that's amazing. It, it, it was it was a shock, and and I'm sure a lot of confused faces on uh, people in the audience, yeah. except for uh, those of our friends and uh, listeners who were there, who were freaking out as much as we were about that happening. And, and yeah, it's still to this day, uh, it's hard to believe that that actually happened. Uh, but yeah, it was one of those you had to be there moments, uh, getting to see. Uh, you know that your your podcast theme song uh, being performed by uh, Weird Al Yankovic up on and and his band up on stage live it was incredible. Uh, and I haven't done, tried this before, but uh, as a sign off, I was wondering if you guys would like to sing Frank's Two Thousand Inch TV with me before we go. You don't have to. Sure. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I uh, I think I'm all. Can you hear it okay? Sure. I can't wait to see how this turns out. <laughs> okay, we'll play it out. It'll be perfect. I can't wait to hear it. Um, All right. If you're in. Rising above the city, blocking out the noonday sun. Dwarfs the mighty redwoods, and it towers over everyone. <laughs> I still remember when that delivery truck came down our block. What a lucky guy. I hear he got the last one in stock. And the neighbors are just green. And the neighbors are just green. They, they say, say that's the biggest green we've, we've ever seen. It's Frank's, Frank's 2,000 inch TV. Frank's 2,000 inch TV. Everybody come and Frank's see. 2000 Frank's 2,000 inch TV. Frank's 2,000 <laughs> inch TV. That's why we don't sing on our podcast, uh, right? 2,000 inch TV. <laughs> Nailed it. All right, we rocked it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll say thank you for coming on the show. Um, thank you, Dave. And thank you, Ethan, uh, from Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast. We're doing. I hope you had a weird time. <laughs> Very weird. <laughs> How um, can someone have a whole podcast about just one topic? I, I, I don't get it. It's just one book. <laughs> well, uh, I think this episode could have used some more tough bikers in it. But other than that, I think it turned out awfully well. <laughs>
<laughs> this was such a blast, Ryan. Thank you so much hey. for thinking of us. I'm glad uh, we were able to reconnect after all that time um, from our uh, war trials uh, in North Korea. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we finally got out. It took two years. Two years. But the diplomats <laughs> lobbied well for us. Well, Ethan, thank you so much. Dave, thank you so much. Hey, you're welcome. Anytime. Yeah, this it was a lot great. of fun. This is great. Always happy to talk about Weird Al. All right, a terrific interview with Dave and Ethan. They were extraordinarily playful and fun and weird, just the way they're supposed to be. Thanks so much for coming on the show, guys. What a pleasure. And all right, moving on to this week's text is the chapter The Beach, spanning from pages 393 to 395. In a synopsis, the nest invaders Gennaro, Grant, and Sattler followed the Velociraptors through subterranean tunnels out to a beach, and upon observing their strange behavior, Grant is struck with an epiphany that they are instinctually driven to migrate. Characters, we have Dr. Alan Grant. Grant chases after the colony of velociraptors who'd fled the nesting area on page 393 until reaching the beach. Grant can't understand the velociraptors' peculiar behavior, but can see that they don't like the sun. Grant agrees with Gennaro that it seems the raptors left their nest en masse to observe the diesel freighter passing through the ocean. The coordinated group behavior of the raptors impresses Grant, and then he considers that this behavior isn't unexpected, given their behavior in the nest in 394. Their sequence implied that the younger animals had keener hearing, detecting the boat first, then the adults led the troop to the beach. Grant guesses that the Velociraptors are unlike a troop of monkeys and that their social organization is settled into a rigid arrangement, almost a military formation. He's utterly confused by their behavior and finds that he's not surprised by this. Paleontology is reliant upon fossils to understand its subject, and these sources of knowledge do not yield all the answers. He admits his profession is limited in what it can possibly ever know, and then inspiration strikes him. He realizes what it is these Velociraptors are doing. They're looking to migrate on page 395. The next character is Donald Gennaro. Gennaro can't understand why the raptors are behaving so strangely on the beach on 393. Gennaro's fun watch compass indicates that the raptors are in that same northeast-southwest alignment as they were in the nest. And upon identifying a freighter in the misty ocean to the south, Gennaro believes, ah, this is why the raptors left their nest. Gennaro observes the raptors so keenly focusing on the passing freighter, and he assumes that these animals must desperately want to escape Isla Nublar, but Grant has a different interpretation. Ellie Sattler. Sattler observes that they are outside the perimeter fence, indicating that she sees now how these raptors must have been able to get outside of the fences through these underground tunnels on page 393. And we have the Velociraptors. The Velociraptors stand in the shade of the mangroves facing south across the Pacific Ocean at 393. They line up in a peculiar fashion. They don't like the sun. The raptors appear to have heard the deep throb of the marine diesel freighter through the waters, which must have drawn the raptors to the beach, deduces Gennaro. They move and act as a group with coordinated behavior. You can think birds kind of flying like this. The younger animals have keener hearing, and out on the beach, the adults are in charge, with a clear spatial organization, much more organized than it had been in the nest. The adults space out about every 10 yards, surrounded by a cluster of infants. The juveniles position between and slightly ahead of the adults, but the adults aren't equal. A female with distinctive stripes along her head was in the center, who is recognizable as the same from the center in the nest, too, on 394. All right, we have localities like the Raptor Nest. The Raptor Nest connects to the beach at the southern tip of Isla Nublar in 393 via a tunnel of curves and slopes of concrete that opens into a cavernous opening onto the beach facing the Pacific Ocean. The beach. The beach is connected to the Raptor's Nest at the southern end of Isla Nublar facing the Pacific Ocean. It's sandy and surrounded by palm trees and a mangrove swamp facing south on 393. They are near enough to an electric fence that they can hear the hum of 10,000 volts surging through the wires. Stylistic techniques. 
We have semicolons. Quote, it wasn't very sunny on the beach. Semicolon. A light mist blue and the ocean was hazy on 393. These are independent clauses conjoined by a semicolon, but they've got very little in common. There's actually nothing that this semicolon does that a conjunction like and wouldn't do just as well. So this is a strange use of a semicolon by my evaluation. Rhetorical questions. Why had they suddenly left the nest? What had brought the entire colony to the beach on 393? These rhetorical questions give us the mindset of Dr. Grant and fuel our curiosity going forward. Crichton has always done well to keep some mystery alive that propels readers to continue through the plot in search of answers. M-dash, quote, that since the dinosaurs are fundamentally birds, M-dash on 395, here inspiration strikes fast and hard, interrupting Grant, shocking and awing him with an answer. And it's interrupted by this M-dash. I like this use of M-dash. All right, discussion questions. We have humility before nature. As Grant observes the velociraptors and tries to make sense of their strange special arrangements and behaviors, he admits something that other scientists in the novel fail to do, other than Malcolm. And this admission is something that perhaps makes Grant distinctly a Crichton-esque hero. He admits to his humility before nature. Quote, there was the oddity of the northeast-southwest orientation. That was beyond Grant. But in another sense, he was not surprised. Paleontologists had been digging up bones for so long that they had forgotten how little information could be gleaned from a skeleton. Bones might tell you something about the gross appearance of an animal, its height and weight. They might tell you something about how the muscles attached and therefore something about the crude behavior of the animal during life. They might give you clues to the few diseases that affected bone, but a skeleton was a poor thing, really from which to try and deduce the total behavior of an organism on 394. Quote, he had started to forget the unprovable possibilities that the dinosaurs might be truly different animals. They might possess behavior and social life organized along lines that were utterly mysterious to the later mammalian descendants on 394 and 395. To Crichton, as was outlined in the previous chapter Hammond, science doesn't know everything, and it's the failure of the scientific era to presume that science will ever possibly know everything. Total knowledge and total control are just a dream. But Grant is admitting that paleontology doesn't offer total understanding, that it is limited, and therefore it admits that total understanding is exactly that, only a dream. Grant and his paleontological profession must be humble with their discoveries, remaining humble with their declarations and publications, because the truth, with a capital T, is lost through the millennia to fossilization. A hero to Crichton is an educated mind with humility. These are the types of heroes that Crichton spares. And it's poetically justified that in this moment when Grant is conceding what they may ever know about dinosaurs is insufficient, he is then struck with inspiration, rewarding him with the answer he's been struggling to find. Ah, the velociraptors want to migrate. The name game. I came across a quick little something that hasn't anything to do with what we were talking about in this chapter, but I do recall that we were going over different names for the characters, and one interpretation came to mind recently that we hadn't discussed. Ed Regis, we did discuss at one point, has a name that harkens to the root word for king, just like the Tyrannosaurus Rex. We discussed, whenever that was, that Regis, Regent, and Rex share a common word that means ruler both in reference to ruling over others, but also in terms of leading them in a straight line, as a ruler would help you draw. A ruler, a rex, or a regent, literally, is one who is, quote, of the king, and leads you straight forward. And note, a regent, specifically, is someone who's placed in charge when a ruler is a minor, absent, or is incapacitated. In this case, Ed Regis was attacked by a minor king, the juvenile rex. It's not just wordplay here. So, 
<laughs> there was the supposition that perhaps Crichton named Ed Regis as destined to be killed by the juvenile Tyrannosaurus, that his name indicates his fate. And that's neat, but I found a new homophonic interpretation that may offer more interesting insights to Ed Regis's name. I was reviewing some of the Believe Me, I Know moments in the novel where characters, namely Ed Regis, declaratively state something that are fundamentally, and in some cases mortally, incorrect. They're egregiously incorrect. Egregious, which means to be outstandingly bad, shockingly bad. They're egregiously wrong. Can you hear that? Ed Regis, egregious. Ed Regis was egregiously wrong consistently. Now, maybe I'm reading too much into this. Maybe it's just a cool coincidence. Or maybe Crichton masterfully unified a character with his character flaw and his character's fate all wrapped up in one succinct name. Ed Regis, egregiously wrong. All wrapped up in one succinct name. Tell me I'm wrong. All right, thanks to my special guests today, Dave Rossi and Ethan Ullman of Dave and Ethan's 2,000-inch Weird Al podcast. What a fun time we had. Their podcast format is fun and littered with inside jokes that Weird Al fans will enjoy. If you like Weird Al, uh, like I do, you can't miss it. It's just fun and good stuff. Go check them out. And I want to sign up today thanking you for joining me too. If you if you want to read along in the book and add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. And if you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash and tear down and gush over and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Park cast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, the Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Infantry, and the worst of those, the King Street Capers. You can find links to all that baggage in the show notes or by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers. And me, I'm on Twitter at RogersRyan22, unless Twitter changes its name to X, or I don't even know. I don't know what the future of Twitter holds, and Twitter's going to be a domain that you can I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast, where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park, and also not that too. Until next time.